in companies that are really forward thinking, what we call modern evolving companies, they are thinking about using technology to improve productivity, to improve efficiency. So I'm doing that internally. I can talk to our customers about that as well. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading accounts payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at Stamply.com. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. My name is Ben Murray, the SaaS CFO. Super excited about the interview today. I'd like to introduce Bob with Workforce Solutions. So greetings, Bob, and take a moment to tell us a little bit about yourself and Workforce Software. Happy to do that. So yeah, uh, Workforce Software, this uh, great little company in the heart of Michigan. Having spent most of my career in Silicon Valley, a a lot of people I've known for a while are asking me, what am I still doing in Michigan? Why I I think our friends in San Francisco expected us to move back after my, my detour into sports and entertainment, which I can talk about later. But Workforce Software is this really cool company. It's redefined modern workforce management. And especially in this day and age, most of us have been working from home and a lot of managers have a hard hard time reaching their employees, whether white collar employees or blue collar employees. Having a connected workforce is super important. So while we've done really well for the first five years that I was there, the past year I have two years, we shifted into hyperdrive. So yeah, workforce workforce software, just like in our name, keeping it pretty strong. Straightforward, we automate workforce management. That means time, absence, scheduling, uh, job scheduling, demand-based scheduling, which I, I can talk about. And then what we broadly call employee experience, which is a way that more and more companies are looking to, to connect directly with their employees on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, and so on. It just, the company keeps growing and I've just, uh, I've really enjoyed being here and and. and still here. That's great. Appreciate the intro on that. And you're in a little bit about yourself, your background, and because today we're going to be focusing on finance and accounting, of course, but your background really steeped in a lot of great finance and accounting experience. So would you say you came up through the accounting ranks or how would you describe your career? And it looks like it's been a mix of software and then, of course, other non-SAS industries. I would say the start to my career, which crazy goes, I'm in my uh, now fourth decade working, but going back to the 90s was pretty standard. Came out of the University of Michigan and went into public accounting, mainly because it was a good paying job back in 1990, which the economy and the hiring trends weren't quite what they are now, but it was, you could go right out of college and uh, get experience and make decent money. and, uh, and, And that's what I did. Never imagined myself 
growing up that I'd be an accountant, but it was an awesome background. I worked for, at the time, one of the big eight, Arthur Anderson, which probably most of your listeners don't even know that name, though they know the consulting firm that evolved from that, which is Accenture, and did a stint internationally with United Technologies, a big manufacturing conglomerate, and then went back to business school. And I would say the second phase of my career really started when back in the mid-90s, I identified San Francisco Bay Area as a place where I had to be. The internet was just getting going. And you know what I saw between my time in college, which was in the late 80s, and my time in business school, which was mid-90s, the use of internet, the use of email, just dramatically different, right? The way computing power really changed, the way business was moving, and the way we were connected. So I went out there and did a couple stints in, in larger companies, and then went into startups. So my background throughout the 2000s was primarily early-stage companies. I was fortunate enough that one of those early-stage companies companies turned out to be a very large later stage company, Salesforce, and got to go through an IPO, which we can talk about it later. But that really opened up my eyes into what I can be a C-level executive. I can be a CFO because I've really done a lot of different pieces within corporate finance. I've done public accounting, so I've seen it from the outside, done internal audit, FP&A, manufacturing, finance management, cost management. I saw a lot of different pieces, went through an IPO, and I said, you know what, why don't I try running this thing? And I haven't looked back, right? I've had nothing but CFO jobs really since 2006, about 15 years. Yeah, that's awesome. I've got some fantastic finance and accounting experience. So we hopefully we can pull that out for everyone listening today and, and some lessons there. But let's set the stage here. It's always interesting to see how finance and accounting functions work in different companies. So if you could tell me a little bit about the stage of your companies, just so we can understand you know, where, you know, maybe funding or employee size or general revenue range. And then tell us a little bit about your finance and accounting team structure, like how many, what types of positions so we can understand that at your stage, what does a successful finance and accounting department look like? You hit on something really important because the stage really matters and the type of company it is really matters. So I, I have a more of a unique background than, than I realized because there's actually not not too many CFOs that are both that have backgrounds both as a CPA and an MBA and, and an FPNA. So I've seen, and I've actually worked in treasury as well. So I've seen different parts of it. So work, Workforce Software is an interesting company from the standpoint that we've been around for 20 years. So we act like a late stage startup, but we've had different you know, kind of points in life. For the first 15 years, we were founder led, bootstrapped, right? It, not, again, not a typical Silicon Valley company in that there wasn't a big fundraising round or two or three. It was just raise some money, get some big customers, reinvest, raise some more money. And that was fifth first 15 years until the founder sold the company to Insight Partners, which is one of the largest private equity venture funds. That's how I got in. So when I got in seven years ago, there was a built-out finance department because the company's been around for a long time. Uh, but I came with a bit of a different background, having worked for, for venture and private equity firms before. And the change really that I put in place is moving the team from very transaction processing oriented, which is obviously important, to being business partners. And it really helped in the past few jobs that I've come in as CFO, I've actually run all of that. So having 
legal, HR, IT, and finance and accounting all in one group is really helpful in the early and mid stages of companies because we're all support staff, but the best companies really orient all those groups to be business partners, where it's finance or IT or, or HR and legal. I realize this is a finance-focused podcast, but I'm always very focused on keeping those admin groups together. HR and finance are like this. Employees are, are almost always the number one cost and the number one asset uh, for a company. Legal needs to be right in there. And IT more and more, and I've seen this evolution over the past 20 years, has gone from being a support function that's managing all the hardware and networking and everything else to having pushed out most systems to the cloud, whether it's like we use NetSuite, we use Salesforce and so on. Those systems used to be on-prem, so you were doing a lot of transaction processing and supporting that way. IT is now a key business partner, helping the business use all those systems and connect them and make sure that business moves efficiently. I, I had a boss at a previous job that assigned words and titles to various functions. And his word for, for admin was accelerate. Because a lot of times admin is thought of as a roadblock. It's the compliance oriented, doing all the check the boxes and th rethinking of it. And that was a big influence on me to help accelerate the business. You still have to do the compliance. You still have to make sure your internal controls work. You still have to do audits and taxes and all those things, but that's not the focus at high growth companies, which is what I enjoy and where I like working, needs to be to help the rest of the business efficiently move forward. So that was the rebuilding. I know I'm getting a long way, which I tend to do to, to, my, to my org, but the big change was really moving from a very operations focused, really accounting group to being a much more finance business partner group. And as we moved and were able to hire more people, actually created an FP&A department and having that separate from what I call cash operations department, ARAP, payroll. It, that's where kind of the efficiency needs to be, transaction orientation. I have a CPA group, again, important to do rev rec and fast closes, all the reporting, but then all of that works very closely with the FP&A, with a business partner group that has both internal con connections to the rest of the company and being really customer oriented internally, but also externally. We work a on a lot of sales deals. We work with sales. So that's also really important. So that that's really the org in that I have. And again, I, we always try, I always try to keep admin headcount down because given a choice in a high growth tech company, if, if you have an X amount of money to spend on a salary, you're generally going to be much better off if you can hire a software engineer, if you can hire a product manager, if you can hire a salesperson, those people are going to directly accelerate growth. So keeping those ratios down where, again, through the use of technology, we can be as efficient as possible is really key. 
What's nice about workforce is that I clearly understand our buyers because I'm doing the same thing. We're selling to the CFO, we're selling to the CHRO, and we're selling to the CIO. And those are in companies that are really forward thinking, what we call modern evolving companies. They are thinking about using technology to improve productivity, to improve efficiency, and those kinds of things. So I'm doing that internally. I can talk to our customers about that as well. So let's talk numbers, right? Because we've got CFOs, controllers, finance, accounting in the audience. So bef- so your teams, right? You're over legal HRIT. So finance specifically, what departments within finance do you have? You have the accounting department probably creating the financial statements, FP&A. What are, what are those specific departments within your finance function? And then how many staff do you have in each of those? Just to give you some numbers, as a company, we're over 100 million ARR. We have about 700 plus global employees. Once you start adding up contractors and things, we're over 1,100. We're, we have over 1,100 customers globally. Our products are installed in 94 countries or so around the world. It changes every day. I think we're still below 100, but it's a very large number. And we have two regional headquarters in addition to the one that we have in Michigan, in the UK, which is our European, what we call EMEA headquarters, and in Sydney, Australia, which is our APJ headquarters. So there is a little bit of duplication between those functions, right? So we have headquarters corporate finance function with a controller, director, cash ops, sales operations, those kinds of things. So the cash operations team is five or six, depending on the year, again, with the keeping the transactions moving, accounts receivables, billing collections, AP, payroll, commissions, those kinds of things. I've got three in the, in the CPA group, and all those groups are under the controller. And then I have a director of FP&A who currently has direct reports, uh, two direct reports, and that's the corporate structure. So we try to be pretty lean, but again, big enough that we have the coverage that we need. And then internationally, we have four or five in, in the UK and three or four in APJ, depending on how you count the headcount. Those groups started with, so we grew as those regional offices grew, their controllers, director of finances, again, are somewhat jack of all trades because they have to do a lot of business and operations because they're much smaller offices. Each of them needs an accountant for the close and they need somebody who's more a finance business partner oriented and somebody to run the transaction. So I think you, you need a minimum of three or four if you're running 10 million plus in, in transactions. And beyond that, it's just based on what you need to support the business. We also bought a company that was based in Canada that came along with a really strong kind of general accountant that did a little bit of everything and we kept him as well. Now we have a person in Canada. That's really helpful. Say around 100 million ARR above and then cash ops, five or six folks, your CPA group under the controller about three FP&A, about three, and of course your international operation. So yeah, that helps us understand what it needs headcount to support an organization of that size, which is sizable. And I'm going to skip to my next question, then we'll get to the KPIs, but right, headcount is only a piece of this, right? To support your finance and accounting function. And a lot of leverage efficiency comes from your tech stack. So I know you mentioned NetSuite and Salesforce. So I'd love to see hear how you've built out your tech stack in finance and accounting because that's getting so much 
focus nowadays. It's not just, hey, I've got an accounting system, a general ledger, and that's it. We need so much more to be efficient, to be insightful in finance. So tell me a little bit about that tech stack. I've learned a lot over the years as I've put in, I've put in some kind of systems, most places that I've been. And so at Workforce, again, having IT as my partner, we work really hard to have key systems, even though we're going to have lots and lots of different systems, but where really the source of truth is for the various pieces of data. And it's very hard to have one system that's a source of truth. In our case, we have, so we try to keep it to a minimum and we have one that's our accounting system that is going to have all the financial sources of truth and then all the customer related stuff, which is Salesforce. And what's nice about Salesforce, and it is now has so many different modules that you can have the customer and all the customer and sales data as the center but you can also add on all the support stuff and, and manage services and marketing and everything else. So everything really flows. All our key data, all our key KPIs flow through uh, Salesforce, but NetSuite is our financial system of record. And then out of that, we build out and, and we're constantly adding things, right? Because the, the business is constantly finding things that they want that's very specific and targeted for, for their business. But those are two centers, two sources of truth. Yeah, that makes sense. And people don't realize until you do it that CRM to accounting integration is so important. And then say within your general ledger, within that suite, now, did you need to unlock more modules? Like, do you need more advanced invoicing revenue recognition modules. So write the core general ledger, but then are you using other modules to take advantage of that technology? For example, say RevRec, advanced invoicing, you know, maybe you're integrating some sort of sales tax compliance on top of it. Absolutely. And again, this is something that we do every year where we look to what we've accomplished. We look ahead and we say, how much of a benefit could we get from further automation? And because automation costs money. Right. And sometimes I have seen people overthink it and bunch, buy a bunch of software where you really could put in a process change that and sometimes having a couple of people work on it is actually going to be cheaper and more efficient than try to have care and feeding for a system. So I would say the core NetSuite does a pretty good job for us. Right. We've added just all the basic modules. What we look what we've been looking at over the past few years is do we need an advanced accounts payable system that helps us move that faster so that we don't need to use additional people. We added a system that helps us close faster that sits on top of it from a startup in the Bay Area called Flowcast that's done a pretty good job for us. We added a commission system because commissions was running on the big huge spreadsheet and that's replaced that. We do have advanced RevRec, we are currently looking at accounts receivable, and next year we we'll probably look at a planning system. But again, we can't necessarily automate everything without just, again, as we look at systems, would I rather add like a PRM system, a partner management system that helps, that would help us sell and service our partners and channel partners better or put in an admin type system that helps me do it better? I'm, I'm going to look at those other systems first, right? Because those budgets are not unlimited. But as we've grown, we've definitely added things. Commissions, like I said, commissions been a big flow cast, probably cut a couple of days from our close by automating all the close tasks 
pretty light system. So those kinds of things. Budgeting is probably something we really need to look at next year, as well as advanced accounts receivable. That's a current project. Yeah, that's a good breadth of, say, what you have now and what you're considering. Because in the tech cycle, you implement, digest it for a little bit, plateau, and then you know push it forward to that next step. So that a lot of good questions coming up here. So I want to make sure we have time. But Let's, let's touch briefly on KPIs and metrics that you present to your board. Really critical to have for your owners financial transparency in your business. You've got Insight Partners, a big investment firm as owner of the business. So what, what are those key metrics that you present to the board that's interesting to the owners and, and investors of, of in the business? And again, I've seen those evolve uh, quite a bit over the years. If I think back when I was at Salesforce, when it was still a startup, Besides reporting regular financials, we put in a KPI dashboard. And what we found was finance was in the best position because we were the glue between all the departments to collect operational data. So we built a dashboard, and it's nothing fancy. It was in Excel at the time that actually collected sales efficiency data, marketing efficiency data uptime, re renewals, things like that. And so that's one of the things that um, I brought to, to, to workforce because in addition to having financial metrics, which I'll go through a couple of them, um, but having these operational metrics are really important, right? So the things that are in a modern kind of SaaS, high growth environment, the most important metric is ARR, right? And how you look at ARR, annual recurring revenue, or CARR, contracted annual recurring revenue, are our most important metrics. So really understanding what's happening ARR to ARR. Is it growing because of new sales, channel sales, Diff splitting it by different products, splitting it by geographies, retention and renewals, super important. So our for our company, I think you mentioned our renewal rate earlier, but for our company, retention and renewals are so super important. Why? Because it's expensive to get a new customer. A super competitive field, we're sitting between payroll and an HR systems. A lot of our customers don't necessarily understand why they need a system in between payroll and, and, and an HR system. But over, so you have to educate them that currently there's a lot of tasks that they're doing that are in neither of those systems. Calculate gross pay. Most companies, particularly with blue collar contingent, temporary employees, union employees, they have whole staffs to figure out what gross pay is, right? Because a, a payroll provider like ADP is gonna calculate net pay, but somebody has to give them gross pay. Somebody has to give them hours. Somebody has to figure all that out. In, in figuring all that out, once you put it in, and if you do it right, and you do the right things for the customer, it is really difficult and expensive to switch. So the lifetime value of our customers, and I'm getting to another metric, lifetime value, super important. A churn retention, super important, because once we get that customer, if we're able to keep them, if we're able to upsell them, they have a tremendous amount of value, right? So we pay super high commission rates, right? Because it, it takes time to ramp up in a lot of cases. If you get a big customer like a Procter & Gamble that's operating in over 90 countries, they're not going to want to pay you from day one a multi-million dollar annual bill because they're not going to be live everywhere at once. It's going to take time. So that, but if you're a salesperson, 
you're working just as hard whether that that customer is implementing everything on day one or it's going to take them three years. So that's why that cost of acquisition is important. Again, tracking that cost of acquisition is important, but also the lifetime value. So all those things around the customer, around the value of the customer, around recurring revenue and where all those co that comes from is super key. And then obviously everything related to cash, right? So in our financials, I think everybody looks at EBITDA. We also look at cash EBITDA, right? Cash EBITDA is EBITDA plus the change in recurring revenue. Again, super, super important for growth SaaS companies. And then just, just the way we use cash, various ratios of what we're spending things on. There's ratios around sales and marketing and the customer acquisition. And then I'm sure you've heard about the rule of 40, which is, and different people shoot for a rule of 50, rule of 60, but, but it's your growth rate plus your, your EBITDA percentage. Uh, so those kinds of things. So there's all kinds of different metrics. Again, they've evolved depending on where we were as a company and what we're being focused on. But those are some of the main ones. Yeah. And it really does a company of your size and say your growth rate, really not a surprise. Sounds like a pretty expansive set of metrics where we talked about ARR, car retention, renewal, CAC, LTV, EBITDA, cash, EBITDA, rule of 40. So write a nice breadth of metrics because write a large organization and you have to look at those right in context. So we have, I want to dive into some of your experience specifically before we have to head out today. But one thing when I'm working with founders and finance teams, some don't have a budget or some have a budget, but then we talk about, hey, three-year planning, thinking a little bit long-term, especially when I've worked in the private equity world, it's like, hey, what are our three-year targets that kind of then educate us about what our budget should be next year? And I noticed in your experience, you talk a lot about multi-year strategic planning exercise. So just briefly, if you can tell me, do you have a framework, right? Because CFOs sometimes lead that process very involved, you know, and, and what kind of framework or how do you think about a company that wants to plan? And for the first time, plan out, say, a three-year exercise or three-year planning targets? The first thing I would say is, like, everybody has to have a reality check that those exercises, by definition, are going to give you an answer that is always wrong, right? You really, nobody knows even at like big stable companies what it, what your revenues are going to be three years from now and and what the business environment is going to be like and if you're a startup company or a mid-stage company or a late stage company um, you still don't having said that you still have to do it you have to have a framework you have to have an overall idea of, of where you're going. And why do you have to do that? Because development cycles take. So if you say, okay, this is what I have funding for. And right, so you have to be super aligned with your board and your investors about how much time you have. Because I've always, not always, the past 20 plus years, I've come into situations that are in some way, shape, or form are, are transformational, right? So it's either a startup, which was very early in my career, management career. I was a finance employee, so you're by definition, you're being transformational because you're doing internal financial things for the first time. You're probably raising money. You expect multiple rounds of funding, right? So you plan that, but you have to know that you have to keep doing that over and over again. And then an example with uh, Workforce, where I came in after Insight bought the company, first time it was run, the company was run by an institution. So you have to work with that institution to figure out, okay, what's your timeline? Okay, we just bought the company. We probably have four, five, seven years 
to really grow it to what they want it to be. So we've got a little bit more of a timeline. Let's go ahead and invest in senior level executives that are going to build to that scale, be able to hire a high level CTO, a high level head of cloud services. If you don't put something in front of them that says, okay, here's where we are today. Here is where the management team and the board wants to take this in two, three, four, five years. This is our timeline. This is our rough framework now. So that's top down. Now let's build it bottom up and figure out where those two things can converge. So I can tell you we have some long-term planning, but what really matters, and again, I've been here seven years, which is actually the longest, I, I like to say this, longest job I've ever had by a few years. My pretty standard stint has been, up to now has been four years. And the reason is workforce uh, software has gone through these transformations and throughout continues to grow, continues to become a, a, a better and bigger company. But we've gone through this process a couple of times, and those things have changed to frame that. Yeah. And that's, I think there's the, the golden nugget there that I love that you said is really aligning with your board. How much time do we have, right? If we are owned by an investment firm, a PEVC, what is that time frame? And right, how much can we actually accomplish in that time frame? You talk about development cycles. Well, hey, if our time frame is three years and it's going to take to a new product to go to market a couple of years, maybe that doesn't fit in that window. So like you said, the top down time frame, box it with that, and then building up those bottom ups targets. So that's great. Love that. And I want to make sure we get to this point in our session today is many of us say, hey, go through an IPO experience. And you were involved with Salesforce's IPO in the accounting function. So just really curious, right? Because you, you've probably seen private accounting, private companies, you've seen public company standards. So what were some lessons learned there on the accounting side from going from a private company and then putting in that rigor to go through an IPO and then have, say, public company standards for your accounting department. By the way, this goes right back to being aligned with your CEO and the board as to what your goals are. And, and you're certainly stretching my memory a bit because it's been almost 20 years since uh, 2004 was when the Salesforce IPO was, but that was actually still relatively close to my CPA experience, my, my big, by the time I left, experience. And I think that's why I was hired. I had two different startups under my belt as the top finance person. And then I had that big company CPA experience, public accounting experience. And from day one, right from the interview, it was like the goal of building this team, really two goals, right? build a sustainable company that's going to grow into a multi-billion dollar company, right? So you're not hiring people for the short run. You're hiring people that can really scale to the, co the company because we're going to grow 100% for the next 10 years. That's the plan. Again, they happen to be right. Obviously, not everybody's right doing that, but that's your orders. It's your walking papers. And, and, then, and then the second thing is, make this company IPO ready because we want to go public in 18 months, which is really fast for a startup, right? The company was founded in 1999. I came in 2002. And it was like, we want to go public in 18 months. By the way, we're in a recession and nobody's going public. Like literally nobody went public for two years, if you remember those days, post.com boom and bust. And we had a dot com in our name.
the biggest challenge and the most important thing that I learned, there's just literally nothing more important than building a, a, a good cohesive team that all understands what they're doing and why they're doing it. And I've just had to learn that lesson over and over again because it's easy to say, but it's really hard to execute because what I had to do was convince people who had the right level of experience but could also operate in a startup environment to do both things, to work on financials that are going to be reviewed by the SEC, which is very much a big company thing. So I had to hire people out of Intel and Cisco and Autodesk, just kind of like big companies where people had really good jobs and just I had to sell them the future. But it was people who wanted to come into that chaotic environment and build something while at the same time not being short term in nature. And that was at the time a really good thing that a good message that Mark Benioff communicated to all of us, like the, the IPO is not a destination. It's, it's a means to an end, but we're at the very beginning. We are not like here to go public and cash out and sell our stock. We want to have a public event so that everybody sees our financials. We can be transparent about how fast we're growing, how profitable we are, how much cash we generate, what a great company it is. We don't mind talking about it publicly. By the way, a lot of companies don't want to be public, right? Don't want to talk about public. But those two things I would say were most important. It's building the team that can do the SEC reporting, can build MDNAs, can do the planning so that the CFO, whether it's me or somebody else, and I've been a public company CFO as well, you got to go out there and get grilled by investors once. That's the biggest pain about being a public company CFO. So what we're doing here, I was doing on a quarterly basis with a bunch of analysts where you have to watch every word and be scripted and so on. You got to have people supporting that, that are giving you the right numbers, that are giving you the right information, that know how to forecast so that you can forecast the next quarter or the next year, but also grow the company. So again, you can have that business partner orientation. Yeah, that's great. And so it sounds like you said about the team, and then it sounds like then you hired the experience, right? Necessary to take you to that next step to to file the paperwork, to get your accounting in order, et cetera. And then one thing, I think it's really interesting when you've worked at a public company, people don't realize it's, that's actually, yeah, when you get on those earning calls, those are all scripted, a little peek into that public company yeah. world. <laughs> yeah, you're not just winging it when you get on those calls. Yeah, if there's any first time or future first time public company CFO, my number one bit of advice is hire a, a, public, a public investor relations firm right away because you really until you do it you have no idea what you're doing and having somebody right I, i'm a big fan of using experts external experts to help you through things you don't know when i became a public company cfo i did not know how to do any of that and so I, I, writing a script being really concise, watching every word, and then practicing and being trained to get up and talk to investors, speak at investor conferences. It, it, it just, it, it, you think you have experience, it doesn't come naturally to everybody. It, it actually takes a lot of work. The CFOs who are really good at communicating it, they've been trained and they probably have an investor relations team behind them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting as a public company then writing the MDNA, right, in your quarterly absolutely. earnings, you know, reports. And it's like those get yep. chopped out. And it's, hey, Ben, can you review this language? Does it make yeah. sense? Or write up this section of the MDNA? It's all that effort, you know, that goes into into public company accounting and finance. So that was great stuff. Great lesson learned at Salesforce. Really interesting starting a couple of years after they were founded. And so I'd like to wrap up here with 
if you could give one piece of advice to modern finance leaders, what would that be? What would be that takeaway for finance leaders coming up the ranks in finance and accounting? Yeah, and I think I said this earlier, but again, I don't think there's anything more important uh, than having a good or great cohesive team. Whether you replace somebody and you develop the people that are there and you supplement it with external hires, or you replace everyone, which I've also done at some point in my career because the company changed so much, you've got to have a lot of trust between you and the folks that are running the various departments. Because the CFO, I've had interviews or I've had people ask me, oh, tell me about your typical day. There's no typical day. You never, when I wake up in the morning, you never know what's going to come up because you could end up doing something that the CEO needs you to do, or you need to talk to customers, or you need to get on a plane and meet with an investor. You got to have a great controller, right? In my case, a great IT director, CIO, head of HR. And then the, that next level needs to be uh, developed. I, when I join companies, I spend 50% plus of my time interviewing, developing people, working with people, and getting that right. And every time I've been slow about making changes, I've always regretted it. I've never regretted moving fast when something is not working. And that's really hard for a first-time CFO. I found it hard. First time I became CFO and I inherited a team, so I got to try to make this work, even if it does. So that's the number one thing for me. It's all about the team. Yeah, that's fantastic. And one thing that I loved in there is, yeah, you don't realize time goes so fast. And you do realize once you've been in the CFO seat long enough that it time goes fast and you do have to move fast. Otherwise, you're a couple of years down the road and nothing's really changed, right? Unless you just implant that sense of urgency. So love that. So Bob, amazing experience, great finance and accounting experience. It sounds like you're having a ton of fun at Workforce. So again, thank you everyone for joining me today. If you want to learn more about me and the SAS CFO, you can visit the SASCFO.com. And Bob, where can they find Workforce Software online? I think at the at uh, WorkforceSoftware.com. So again, Bob, thanks for joining us today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at Stamply.com slash Leaders of Modern Finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.